Hi, everyone. It's your podcast host, Jim Andrews, here with a reminder that the Ticket Manager Partner Summit is back. We'll be getting together in person on October 17th this year at the Times Center in New York City. This is a free, invitation-only event where hundreds of business leaders across the world's most influential brands in sports, sponsorship, live events, and ticketing gather to make great connections and share valuable information. Approved attendees enjoy exclusive networking events, insightful panels, and exciting celebrity speakers, all for free. Are you interested in attending? Just go to ticketmanager.com for details on how to apply. Welcome to Ticket Manager's All Access Interview Series, engaging leaders from across the sports marketing spectrum to identify and explore critical issues in the business of sports, entertainment, sponsorship, activation, ticketing, hospitality, and even more. I'm your host, Jim Andrews. Joining me on this episode is Ricardo Fort, the founder of Sport by Fort, his own consulting firm that is now just over a year old. And of course, previously the head of global sponsorship for both Coca-Cola and Visa for nearly a decade. Ricardo, welcome. It is an absolute pleasure to have you join us today. Thank you for inviting me. Pleasure to talk to you. Can you just tell us briefly about Sport by Fort and and what you're working on currently? Sport by Fort is a firm that I I founded a year ago when I uh, decided to uh, go solo after 25 years of experience working for for corporations like Coca-Cola or Visa or Unilever, I, I, I thought it was time for me to do something different. And I decided to, you know, to do what I love to do, which is working with sports, work with sports marketing, but helping more brands, helping um, sports tech startups and other companies that are trying to figure out how to invest in sports. So today my life is a combination of all these things. So with traditional sponsors, helping them think about their investments, negotiate contracts, also advising a series of uh, sports tech startups, and also doing some work on you know, investing in uh, sports content firms and a little bit of a voluntary work in some of uh, some other areas that I'm very passionate about. I need to do a whole second episode with you, just, just hearing more details on, on some of those projects. But for now, I'll stick to what we had talked about uh, earlier. And, and the first area that, that uh, I'd like to talk about is, is evaluation uh, and measurement. Now, you worked for two companies in particular, Coca Visa, that are very good at evaluating how their sponsorships are performing. But I would say that there's plenty of evidence that many other uh, brands, sponsors don't do uh, such a good job in in that area. We see a lot of measurement activity around the top of the purchase funnel. But there's a perception, I think, that it's it's either too difficult or too expensive to isolate the impact of of sponsorship on on sales and and other behavior related to purchasing uh, kind of at the bottom of that funnel. I'd love to get your your perspective on that, both from your experience and what you might be willing to advise uh, other brands uh, in terms of what they should be doing. Yeah, so you're right, Jim. This is uh, one of the areas that is most demanded by senior managers. So the CEOs, the CFOs, 
when they engage in conversations about sponsorships, usually they are not paying a lot of attention in the awareness that you build or the number of tickets that you get. What they really care about is why I should spend all this money, and usually is a lot of money, to do this instead of all the other things that I can do from an investment standpoint. Today, some of the sponsorships that large brands are dealing with, they are as expensive as acquiring a new company, as launching a business in a new country, or you know, investing in equipment. So uh, sponsorship managers are competing with all these other choices that management have in front of them. And unless you do a very good job in explaining why that investment in sponsorship is better than all the other alternatives, chances are the investments in sponsorships are going to go down over time. So I was lucky enough to work for companies that have an abundance of data And that is a very good starting point for developing any models for for measurement. It is not a a must-have, but it it certainly makes things easier if you have a lot of data available. So a history of sponsorships, a history of performance of different countries in different markets during periods of activation versus periods of non-activation, all of that help the brands to figure out What's the exact impact of the investments? But even if you don't have all this information, it's possible to develop models that with a certain level of certainty gives an indication of the potential impact of the sponsorships. What I see today, even with large brands, is that they are very focused, as you mentioned, on the top of the pyramid. So when you see reporting from after events, you see a lot of these brands talking about being the most remembered brand, the most associated brand with the event, when the reality is all of that, these are all vanity measures. So sponsorship managers can brag in the sponsorship press about being the most associated, but the reality is that it's relevant. What I I encourage people to try to get to is because of that sponsorship, the attribution of this sponsorship to the business results were X. And I, I've seen examples, I developed models for Visa and for Coke, where uh, we got to a point where we could say, you know, by country, by you know, uh, volume of sales, by revenue, by profit, all of that was you know, a result of that specific sponsorship. And that gave a lot of confidence for senior management to, to make decisions or for me to recommend not doing something. So that's the, uh, a little bit of the background on when to do it, how to do it and the value of doing it. And do you think that, I, I, sometimes I hear the argument, well, of course, if you're, if you're Visa or Coke and, and the, you know, the, the spending is in, is in the hundreds of billions of dollars for major sponsorships, you know, that's, it's worth the investment in, in the modeling. But uh, you know, if, if I'm a, a company that's maybe spending $10 million or so, that's my entire annual budget, you know, is, it, is it still cost-effective uh, to do that kind of modeling? You know, my, my impression is that the, the, the cost to do those kinds of things has certainly come down thanks to technology uh, in, in, in recent years, uh, but I'd love to hear, hear your insight on that as well. Any budget is, uh, is important. So if you invest 100, 10, or one, you can still adapt your own way of measuring your own model 
to to your to your reality. And I don't I don't think the level of investment is a, is an excuse to do it uh, one way or the other. The the thing that prevents sponsorship people to spend time and energy in doing this is now there are a few things. So it is very hard. So it, it's not a, a natural, an area of comfort for most people that grow up working in sponsorships. You know, activation and promotion and event management is, is more fun. It's easier. It's more natural to do than sitting down with, you know, data science and, and you know, measurement companies to, to think about that. But it's, I think it's as necessary, if not more necessary than, than ever to, to do it. Uh, so don't I my I encourage you know the the people that are listening to us don't don't get distracted by your investment level because even a okay model is better than no model at all. So uh, if you if you want to leave a, a legacy you know, of your you know, of, of at your job when you when you move to the next big one you know measurement is probably one of the most important things you can do. I think you mentioned in our earlier conversation that we had, there's an expense associated with the measurement. It's uh, it's it's not going to be as expensive as as a bad sponsorship, as a sponsorship that's not performing, correct? <laughs> that, that, yeah, that's uh, that's perfect. Yes. Uh, one one bad sponsorship uh, costs more than, you know, a hundred models. It's, right. it's the same old story of, you know, developing a bad TV ad and then spending a gazillion dollars airing it. So, right. you know. You're just paying attention to the wrong things. Let, let's shift away from, from measurement to another big topic area uh, for, for sponsors, uh, particularly recently. That's uh, been a lot of discussion around the, the pressure that's been put on sponsors of, of events that are being held in, let's say, controversial places or are connected to people or governments who are considered bad actors regarding human rights, corruption, all of those kinds of things. That is something that in your previous roles, uh, you had to deal with uh, those kinds of situations. So I'd love to hear a little bit about kind of the the internal process uh, for deciding how as, as a brand to respond when it's activists or consumers who are, who are raising these, these legitimate issues. I, I had discussions with in my previous jobs with the people that were in charge of the human rights. Now, every big company has a human rights department and, you know, they, they deal with labor issues. They, they deal with you know, challenges like, you know, countries that don't respect human rights. So, and they interact with the NGO community that, you know, that is dedicated to combat human rights abuse. So usually these people will come to you and say, Hey, uh, we know we have this event coming in Russia I don't think we should do anything about it. We should be quiet. We should not promote it. And, and my, my feedback to these people was always, our company chose to do business in all these countries. Our company does business in China, in Russia, in, in Saudi. So if we have a problem with these countries, we should not do business there. So if we chose to do business there, we shouldn't have a problem in promoting an event that is happening there. So that there is no judgment of merit of the, of the country or what I think personally about this company. The organization that I'm working for decided that they are going to deal with that government, whatever they do. 
And in this case, you just have to go ahead and promote the event. So my my conversation, I always I always shut down this kind of approach because I think it's hypocritical. It's uh, inconsistent with the behaviors of the company. So uh, assuming that we are going to move forward and we are going to promote all these events, there are things that you can do to prepare yourself to do it better, uh, reduce the risk that is inherited to all of these events, and things that you you know that you can or cannot do. So. When the event is happening in 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 Russia, and you are advertising and you're using a map of the world to say we are promoting in all these countries, you have to think about what you're going to do with regions that were invaded by Russia, or if you're doing China, you have to think about how you present Tibet, right? So because that can be that's a small thing that can become a big problem. You are always surprised by things that are difficult to predict. So you have to have a team in place dedicated to crisis management with a focus on that specific event. So before before every event, there is a standing group that meets regularly to review the the challenges and the potential issues that the event is going to bring to the company. And you have specialists from the sports marketing team, the, the, the government relations, uh, public affairs, and in the host country. So all these people, they talk often trying to mitigate problems, trying to engage proactively with NGOs, and trying to navigate this, uh, this, you know, this storm that usually hits all the sponsors. The idea of every sponsor is to make sure that you take maximum benefit from this event without putting the, the company in a position that can be harmful for its reputation. Uh, and, you know, with a little bit of care, you 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 are able to do this. It's, it's very rare that you have to make decisions that say, I'm going to stop the activation here. I'm not going to do X, Y, or Z because that's too risky for us. But this, this standing group is, is the, at the core of uh, all the projects. It's a little bit unfair, the kind of the, the spotlight that, that sponsors are, are, are under in, in, in those situations, because as you point out, there are plenty of corporations, multinational corporations that have chosen to do business in, in, in all of those countries. Yet it's the it's the sponsors of the Olympic Games or, or, or World Cup that get, uh, that get kind of called on the carpet, if you will. But to that point, just as, as a follow up, you know, I, I, the reason that that happens, why why the sponsors are kind of the, the the focus of that attention, is because there's an assumption that the sponsors can really use their influence uh, with with the governing bodies to affect change. So I'd like to hear from you. Just what is the reality there? How much weight do sponsors carry with with those organizations? Limited, on a good day, none. <laughs> Most of the time, the sponsors are, are probably the most visible constituent of every event because no, they are there promoting, they're investing in media, they are doing promotions and you know, they're bringing people to the event. So it's normal that most people in society would believe that they play a disproportional role in terms of influence of uh, what happens at every event. But the reality is that, that they don't. And to be, you know, to go one step further, even the commercial teams of the rights holders, they have very little involvement with decisions of uh, hosting mm-hmm. and decisions of how to handle hosts. Because 
the elections, the selection of all these host countries, it happens usually in the case of the IOC, by the IOC members voting. In the case of FIFA, it used to be the FIFA board and then became the FIFA Congress. So they are the ones that selecting the countries. And, and this is a political process more than a, a business process or a process that follows any logic, right? So when you think about Michel Platini being influenced by the former French president Sarkozy, asking him to vote for Qatar because Qatar was an important business partner for France. This is an influence that is impossible to predict. This is an influence that that even the rest of the board members at FIFA, there's nothing they can do about it. So sponsors are so detached from that that they can only live with the results. What sponsors hope for is that over time, you're going to have a group of hosts that are beneficial for business that are and I, and I think that in long relationships that's the case so if you think about the the longevity of some of these sponsorships or visa for coca-cola for procter and gamble for omega i mean they've been long enough associated with the olympics in in for for example to live through great hosts and bad hosts so as long as the average is positive, that, that's okay. We, we don't, sh- shouldn't get very much attached to one specific host and say, oh, the Winter Olympics in China was a horrible decision. Yeah, it was a, it was a bad decision. Uh, looking at the big scheme of things, you have to take into account they competed against Almaty, which would be an even worse decision. So exactly. if you put yourself in the position of an of a IOC member, they did it right to choose China. And then, of course, when you look uh, towards the future, you see you're gonna see, you know you're gonna have fantastic hosts. You have you have Paris, you have Milano Cortina, and then you have LA, and then you who you know, eventually Brisbane. Have Brisbane. So you have you have fantastic hosts coming up, uh, which makes every every sponsor very happy. So I guess uh, you have to take a step back and look from a long-term perspective, if the hosts are good or not. Uh, but sponsors have zero influence in, in this decision and they just have to deal with the cards that they are dealt with. Just as a follow-up to that, because uh, you know, it, it is kind of that, that, that cycle is, is coming around, as you mentioned, to locations that are, are much, much less difficult in terms of being in Western Europe, North America, Australia. And you see that as a real opportunity for sponsors, and in, 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 in particular in, in certain areas. Can you can you talk a little bit about what you see there? It's a it's a it's going to be a fantastic decade for Olympic sponsors, for top sponsors, for domestic sponsors. So every brand that has the opportunity to be associated with the Olympic movement in the next uh, ten years is going to benefit a lot from that. Not only from the absence of uh, main of big challenges like we had in China or in Russia, but because of the, of the commercial opportunity that these games are going to offer. So no, you're going to have the next two games in the heart of Western Europe, which is going to be fantastic, not only for France or Italy, but for every country in Europe that the proximity, you know, time zones and for mobility, for coming to the games, this is going to be great for uh, for Europe. The attractiveness of an European games to the American audience, to the Latin American audience, even to the Asian audience, it, it's, it's enormous. So it, it's going to be great to be part of it. 
And then when it comes to LA, you know, we saw what the United States did when it hosted last in 1984. You know, it transformed the games, uh, basically creating the idea of global sponsorships after that. And I, and I think we can we have high expectations of the LA 2028 games. They already have great partners, domestic partners. All the tops are excited to be part of it. So it, it would be great for you know, every brand that is associated because of the business that North America or Europe can generate for any global operation. So, you know, lucky all these brands that have the chance to, to be around the Olympics. For someone who's had such a, you know, a long career in sponsorship and, and on the brand side, I'd love to hear your perspective, Ricardo, on whether or not there's there's a gap between what what properties are are delivering or or how they're kind of communicating with, with sponsors in the sales process and then in, in the execution process. Is, is there anything that you see that the rights holders and properties could be doing to become better, even better partners for the for sponsors? Uh, yeah, that there there are always things that can be can be improved from I guess from both sides. And it's impossible to give you an answer in generic terms because every rights holder is different. Mm-hmm. But there are things, and you know, I'm privileged because I have worked with so many. So there are things that I think every rights holder can learn from the others. And, and I had a chance to see a lot of them operating. So I'll give you, I'll give you a few examples. First of all, no matter who they are, they, there is one behavior for during negotiations and there is one behavior for everyday management, account management. So, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll forget the negotiation for a second because, you know, that's, that's a very specific thing. But on an ongoing basis, there are things that I'm, you know, I, I, I'm a big fan. If you think about the, uh, the NFL, for example, so in the United States, the NFL is probably the, in my experience, the most commercially flexible rights holders that there is. So they, they are uh, very smart and connected with the needs of the partners so they they are capable to make decisions and and be flexible to benefit partners to do things that they see as value for them and for the partner. So when you compare NFL, American football, with soccer, global football, and the kind of access that you have to the field of play, for example, I mean, with the NFL, you can if you tell them, listen, I have a hundred clients that I need to bring to the field, you know, half an hour before the Super Bowl, they will figure out a way to make it happen. Yeah. If you try to do this at a Champions League or you know at the World Cup, it, it's it's really hard not to say it's impossible, because the culture of the NFL is let's figure out a way to make it to make things happen. So I think in the category of being commercially savvy, NFL is is outstanding. When it comes to I'll say you know social issues, helping you talk about social issues. NBA is always ahead of the curve. They are always connected with the community, what they are thinking, the the the, the movements in culture. So they are always open to you know to to have these conversations and and partner with brands to help them drive the cause that they think is important uh, for the brands and and for them. Mm-hmm. When it comes to uh, communication with the partners, for me the benchmark is the work that McLaren does in Formula One. Uh, McLaren is exceptional in engaging with the partners. They have, you know, maybe 40 plus partners. Zach Brown, their CEO, 
or you know their commercial team, their marketing team, uh, you know, Claire, their CMO. So they are constantly you know, talking to the partners. They are sending video messages. They are sending communication. They you know you never you are never surprised by anything that is happening with McLaren because you are not aware because they didn't tell you. So they are they are proactively they are all the time talking to you. So you feel like. You know what's going on. You knew. You know. You feel like you can. You know. You can speak about McLaren within your organization, your organization, uh, credibly because you are informed. So a lot of good practices there. The, the IOC, I think they do a very good job in connecting the partners. They you know they have often they they bring the partners together. They foster this communication. You know they want to make sure that the top community knows each other and, and and help each other when possible. So I was with Visa, I was doing projects with Coke, you know, we have engaged with other companies too. So trying to work with Airbnb, for example. So you know, I, IOC is very, uh, is very good at that. And, and I think that, you know, this is just a little, you know, this is some, some you know, top of, top of mind example. I mean, every, every organization has its own uh, good and areas of development. Sure, sure. And I think one of the, the interesting things about all of those examples is none of those you would characterize as being something terribly difficult. You're not asking these, these types of organizations to you know completely tear up the contract every year and start over and, and completely new assets. No, you're asking them to do basic things like keep the lines of communication open, you know, have some flexibility uh, around, you know, requests to get on the field, to, you know, bring sponsors together at a summit or whatever it is, make those connections. I mean, th- those are not necessarily <laughs> big asks, uh, I-, I don't think. So that- that's that's great. I guess the last, I, you know, could, could definitely spend uh, another hour asking you all the questions I'd like to, but I'll, I'll manage it with, with, with just one. And, and that is, you've had a career in sponsorship that is, that is the envy of many people, you know, getting to, getting to run some, some great programs and, and now being a consultant. But, but in, in general, we often hear that specializing in sports marketing and sponsorship is, is not necessarily a great path to obtaining senior leadership positions in, particularly in corporations. How do, how do you see that? And, and, and what advice would you offer to people who are in the earlier stages of their careers? There, there is some truth to, to that because, and this is not uh, exclusive to the uh, career in sponsorships, because whenever you choose a career of a specialist, you are going to limit your growth potential within an organization because organizations are designed to promote generalists. Right. So the CMO of the company would be someone that has worked in operations, sales, marketing, um, eventually technical product development. Uh, so we have a career which is you know more diverse than a specialist. And most companies, and I'm, I'm thinking with my own experience, large companies which you know are not in the business of sports, they you know they have other needs and they just use sports to reach whatever business objective they they have. So if you are a specialist in taxes, in sponsorships, in formulation of products, you now you have you have a value for the company that is know what you do and it's unlikely that you're going to be the CEO of the company. So if you know if your ambition is to become the CEO of the company, you know, 
find a career which is more diverse and go work with, you know, be a marketer, which is how I started, just work in finance and operations, you, you name it. Right. You know, for, for some people, and I, you know, I, I am of this opinion and I have this profile, I opted at some point in my career, I opted for doing something that I, I liked and I thought it was, I was good. And I thought I was, you know, competent, and I, and I would, I would have fun doing this. So it was, it is a, it is definitely a choice that you have to make at some point in your career, uh, between, you know, I want to go very far doing something that I'm not very passionate about, mm-hmm. or I'm going to go to a certain point, which you know can be great, can be very rewarding financially, uh, in terms of experience, but it is you know, uh, anchoring things that I care and I like to do. So, you know, the, the, the option is, is very personal. I, at some point in my career, I thought that the working in general marketing would lead me to become a CMO, lead me to become a CEO. And I realized after some time doing this, that the only part of my job that I liked was the sports. So I was wasting my time. So uh, it was very easy for me because I had the conviction that I'm uh, I like to do this. I'm good at doing this, and I can live with the consequences of having a career of a specialist. But I, my advice to you know, to young young professionals that are starting their career is, you know, you know, l- learn other things. You know, if you you cannot claim to be a sports marketer if you don't understand marketing. Right. Sports marketing is a subset of marketing, so you have to understand communication, how to position a product, how to sell a product. How to develop promotions for a product? How to you know use the you know the communication tools that are available today, and then eventually you migrate into you know sports if this is what you want to do. And when you make this choice, then you have you know another ten different things that you can do. You can work for an agency, you can be a rights holder, you can be a sponsor, you can be athlete manager. So there's so many things you can do, and you know in in the first ten years of your career, try to do as many as you can. Because eventually you will find something that you know, check all the boxes for you that you like, that you're good, that you have opportunity, and then you know this may become a career. But you know careers are are long. I mean, you're gonna work you know 20, 25, 30 years of your life. It's not a big deal if you get it wrong for the first 10 years. Eventually things you know, will work out if you if you if you have the conviction of what you want to do. So don't don't. I'll try to to convince people not to to put too much pressure on themselves and try to make decisions at you know twenty three of what they're going to do for the rest of their lives because that that makes no sense. I, I think that's among the the best advice I, I've heard for for young people in our business, and and I really appreciate it. And 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 obviously, following your own advice has worked out pretty well for you, I would say. So, Ricardo, I can't uh, again thank you enough for for taking time today, and maybe we'll get a chance to uh, to do it again. Because, like I said, there's certainly so many fascinating things about our business that uh, uh, that you're involved in. I'd love to hear more about. But uh, but thanks so much for your time. Thank you for the the invitation and the opportunity to talk to to you uh, today. All right. And thank all of you on behalf of everyone at Ticket Manager. Thank you for watching and listening. And please join us again for the next episode in the All Access interview series.